Each generation through its trials and its triumphs, valleys and plateaus provides a trove of lessons for the generations that follow them. We advance by building on the work of those who have gone before us, and many of them are still among us to put us on game. Gen Activist is an intergenerational podcast presented by Rosa Rebellion, a platform for creative activism by and for women of color. Imagine it as a historical digital archive remastered for contemporary use and permanent preservation. These are our stories told for us, by us. You're listening to Gen Activist. Come on in the room, come on in the room, y'all. Pull up a chair. Welcome to another episode of Gen Activist. As always, we are honored and thrilled that you are listening in. Check out this conversation with me, G-Mom, and Virginia as we rap about representation in the media. And then you're going to hear from today's guest, Grace Parra, who is an actress and a screenwriter. She has done so many amazing things. Um, she's been on the Larry Wilmore show, show as well as Superstore, which is you know, one of my husband's favorite shows and a whole bunch of other things. She's currently developing a project um, for ABC. And full disclosure, she's an advisory board member of Russell Rebellion. Um, just always so supportive and enthusiastic about the work we are doing as a whole of Russell Rebellion. Also has just tons of ideas and we just love her. We are so honored that she graced the pod. And so we think you'll really enjoy the richness of that conversation. As always, baby girl is in the background. Um, so is Eli a little bit in this episode. Y'all, it's unavoidable. They're probably just part of the pod now. Consider them our co-hosts. Um, so yeah, check it out. We hope you'll love it. You know, y'all are tired of talking about that very, what should we say, eventful 2022 Oscars. But we're not here to talk about that now very infamous exchange between two very well-known actors. No, I think there's another story that's worth us exploring here at Gen Activists. Story about ongoing conversations about representation. Now, if y'all recall, only about two years ago, there was a particular conversation that was spurred by the hashtag OscarsSoWhite. A conversation that forced us to interrogate the lack of representation the lack of not only nominees of people of color, but more importantly, the lack of stories that were being honored, the lack of stories that were made visible to represent the multifaceted experience of being people of color in this country and in this world. Well, fast forward only two years, two years that have seen this collective navigation of a global pandemic, two years that saw a very short-lived racial reckoning spurred by ongoing police brutality against black bodies, violence and vitriol against AAPI bodies, and the politicization of Latinx and brown community members. And yet, we saw a very, very white Oscars take place this year. And what's interesting is this particular experience of the Oscars. We saw in a particular category the honoring of a very talented actress, an Afro-Latina actress by the name of Ariana Dubois. She became the only second Latina to win that particular award. Now, before we go clapping, which I'm not sure it deserves such praise, we're talking only the second Latina in more than 75 years of this award show. 
But in case you didn't know, she was the second Latina to win an award for that very same role of playing that particular part in West Side Story. Rita Marina won that award almost 50 years ago. And y'all, that's just so telling on so many levels. And G-Mom, as someone who I know saw the original West Side Story, I'm interested in your thoughts. I can remember your Aunt Moni. Uh, There were two films that came on almost every year. And we had to have a party at our house to watch it together because those are the days of one TV where we all gathered around and watched it. And uh, West Side Story was one of them and The Wizard of Oz was the other one. Uh, So it has history in our families. I don't think as we shouldn't have to, but we have to. Uh, Think of the historical and social context in which those movies emerge. Some of them were attempts by the writers and the musical writers to, in some way, particularly with West Side Story, to disrupt um, thinking in America. But it was so little. It was it was safe. It was one people could sympathize with. Um, so um, so in that sense, I reflect on it from that context. But I think that the fact that that same movie that same script same award says we haven't gone very far as far as the latino or latinx representation and even though there are films being produced and written by the latinx community this is the one that gets the academy award So I think we have to look at cinema as a reflection of where we are as a nation. And at that award, that simple moment of the award was a moment where history and where America is was retold. Yeah, Virginia, you know this, but one of, um, so one of my favorite TED Talks is by an author, um, Chimamanda Adichie, and she talks about the danger of a single story. And in the TED Talk, she's telling the story about how, um, you know, there, when she came to school in America, um, her roommates had one picture of what it meant to be Black. Um, and so they just assumed certain things about her. And it was because they had a single story of what you know, black people were as a people, and I think that the academy um, is, um, you know, perpetuating that same thing. Not that you know, oh, you know, the Oscars or the Academy giving you award is the only way people can challenge knowing a single story, right? But there certainly is a level of um, affirmation that comes with an Oscar. Right. And there's a certain level of notoriety that picks up after one wins an Oscar. And so the Academy is implicitly saying that, you know, only X amount of Latinas um, or Latinos are, um, you know, being affirmed um, for for their stories when we know that their stories are 
um, wide and beautiful and there's multiple angles. And they've also had the opportunity to award more. They've had the opportunity to amplify other stories and they have just chosen not to. Um, and I think it's dangerous. I think it is uh, implicitly amplifying a single story um, is, is problematic. And we know they can do better. Like, it's just not that, it's 2022, I'm sorry. Like, it's just not that hard. It's lazy to me. It is ultra, ultra lazy. It's lazy and I think your, your word choice is correct. It's harmful. It is dangerous, right? And, and while we don't look to the Academy Awards as the singular authority, right? It has power, it wields power and it creates this conscious and unconscious um, dynamic around who we, um, who we value. And when we think about even in the last few years, the stories that have been greenlit, right? Next to West Side Story was In the Heights, which is another story based in New York around um, the immigrant story um, and a very particular immigrant story because that was a lot of the backlash around In the Heights that it was a very particular um, expression of the Latinx experience. Um, which also was ex visually expressed by mostly light-skinned Latinas, right? And I think that was one thing that was um, important was that um, Ariana Dubois, she is an Afro-Latina, and so she was the very first Afro-Latina to win that award. But not only are these stories singular in nature, but it also is political in its context, right? The, the conflict between the sharks and the jets wasn't just around territory. It was also the story of who gets to be seen as American, who gets to own and take up space, not only in this neighborhood, but this country. Both immigrants, those coming from Ireland, those coming from Italy, those coming from Puerto Rico, but as white immigrants, right? They were given a certain level of privilege, a certain level of access, and that same um, that same narrative, that same reality is very much what we're seeing taking place now. When we think about the awful atrocities happening in Ukraine right now. But when we think about the, um, the invitation and the response that there has been in America in inviting these political refugees to America and the way they've been um, given resources. And then we liken that to a similar political context that was happening in Venezuela, that was happening in Haiti, right? That's been happening in Mexico. And so I think what happens, right, with these stories that get amplified and greenlit to go to Hollywood and then be awarded is that we're fixated again on the, this idea of who belongs and who doesn't, who's given access to the American story and who isn't. And I think that's one of my frustration points of the seemingly really beautiful moment um, around another Latina woman being um, given this accolade, but what it actually means, you know, in reality. Well, I think you, I think you can't dismiss. Uh, well, there are a couple of things um, responding to what you're saying. Um, America has a way of they can only deal with one racial group at a time, so they consider themselves to having opened up things more to Blacks, you know, it was the first time with a Black producer and all that. Uh, and they, 
they have this way of patting themselves on the back. What, oh, what a good boy we are. Oh, what a good people we are. We let you all do this and do that. So someone has to be sacrificed while we're working on one racial group at a time. And that's why I think what we're witnessing, this magnanimous view of all humanity just has not arrived in America. So I think that, and also there's a wonderful, so the tragic part about it is that those conditions that they portray in Puerto Rico, not because the people but because of the social context, because of the powers that be. They're living in the same conditions now that they were living at the time when the first uh, West Side Story was written, which is shameful. Almost there should be shame about that. So you go to Bronx, et cetera. You know, I've done work with community schools in those communities. They're struggling around the same issues. So it's a commentary on where we are. I think the commentary will be missed. People will be so caught up in the emotion of the movie and the music and the acting and these beautiful characters, et cetera, and miss the whole context in which it occurred um, and that we haven't moved beyond that. So it's a commentary on America. But we also know that book, when the Irish became white, it's, it, it's the tale that we all see is that you can come to America as immigrants and you can come poor as immigrants, but if you are white, you can, and, and Irish did face a lot of discrimination. They had the hardest jobs, et cetera, et cetera. But there's something magical about that white skin that you can escape that, you can go beyond. And so that author in when Irish became white was trying to make that point. But people of color cannot escape it because now we have a tag for you and you can never. And this gives us permission to continue our greed. This gives us permission to use power to oppress people. It gives us permission to maintain substandard housing in certain communities if we attach it to Black people. It would be shameful if you were telling that story about the Irish 20 some years later or how many. All of these things kind of converge. They come together into what nation have we been? What nation are we now? And what nation will we be? And the arts often reflect that in a Our conversation with Deborah uh, Roberts was that. The arts mirror back to us who we are, where we are, and where we think we're going at a moment in time. So there was another story besides yeah, that. Yeah, I think like, you know, when we talk about where we're going, this this is what I, I hope in terms of creating um, G-Mom is, so there's these two shows that came out. One's called Harlem, one, called, one is called Girls Run the World. And they are essentially the same show. I mean, of course, I think the creators would probably argue with me. There are nuanced differences, but it's the same show, literally it's the same, show. same city, same city, wow. New Yorkers, four black women navigating the city, think sex in the city with black women. Right. But what I love about both of their existence is that they are both allowed to exist yeah. and that, you know, we, we hope that we get to the point where there's not just one, where there's like, well, you can have one of these, one of that, because they have reduced 
um, you know, spots for people of color to that, right? Because it is essentially the same show, but there are some differences. There are um, nuances to their lived experience that are different. Their characters are different. Their personalities are different. Um, and that's more true to real life. And so I hope that, and, and we talk about this um, with Grace, which the podcasters, the listeners will get to listen in, um, in a little bit. But the ability, one, to, to have more than one, even if they are very similar, like, so there was, there's like Grey's Anatomy and umpteen other medical shows with white people leading it, you know, like, so how many SVUs are there? Like, you know, so like the ability to, to have more than one, even if they're very similar to show our um, dynamics and then the ability to have something be bad right? Like we, you know, so, and we talk about this in podcasts, but um, yeah, I, I think that when you talk about like the hope, um, I hope that we're able to take up more space um, and tell the stories that we want to tell that aren't just tied to pain or struggle or hurt that show our full humanity. Um, and when I say our, I'm, I'm talking about melanated folks, period. You know, I'm talking about people of color who they've also often siloed. Chin activist yeah 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 well welcome y'all back to our virtual living room we're so grateful to have you here for another episode of gin activist and we are so excited for our guest today um, miss grace para um, who we've had the opportunity to get to know because of her wonderful contributions to the rosa rebellion vision and mission as one of our board members but who we're really excited for our listeners to get to know um, because she's just an incredibly um, amazing voice in the space of television um, and the space of storytelling. And we just are excited to get to know her a little bit more. So welcome, Grace. Hello, ladies and uh, all who are tuning in. Hi, hi, hi. I'm so happy to be here today. Um, I am just so uh, obsessed with this organization and so proud to be a part of it. So thank you guys for including me. Wonderful. Well, I think also something that connects us at least Megan and I, right, is that you're a Texas gal. Yes. So welcome to all the Texans. And then you're also <laughs> in LA, which is where Jean yep. Mom is. So I feel like we could feel kindred spirits in some way. Um, but, in, you know, when we think about kind of your origin story, um, you've been on all the coasts. So you grew up in Texas, you went mm -hmm. to college in New York, and then now you've made a home in California. Mm -hmm. And it's interesting because when we think about sort of conversations of culture and identity and language, right? Those spaces have been so closely aligned with our country's history, particularly when we think about the Latinx experience. But we know as Texans, right? Like the Latinx, Latino experience in Texas is not the same as California, is not oh, the same as Texas, I mean, as in New York. So I wonder if you could just walk us a little bit through your origin story growing up in Texas and then um, some of the, the things that kind of have um, defined your personhood. Well, first, I love that you consider Texas a coast because it is. It definitely is. It merits it. It's got its own culture, its own vibe. Thank you. Yes, <laughs> which I did not appreciate until I left it. So I was I was born in Pampa, Texas, which is a tiny town in the panhandle of Texas, mm -hmm. close to the Oklahoma border. And then my family moved to Tulsa, Oklahoma for the first two years of my life. And then we moved to Houston when I was around two. So I technically, I consider myself a Houstonian, even though technically I was born in Pampa uh, and got a little bit of small town Texas feel. But 
But, um, you know, growing up in Houston, I really felt like I wanted to live on the, what I consider the proper coasts, like LA and New York. I was like, I, I knew from a young age, I wanted to be in entertainment. And I was like, if I can move out to those coasts and I'll be able to realize my dream and screw Texas and like, whatever, it's too hot out here, too many mosquitoes, it, which is true. It is very hot and there's a lot of mosquitoes. Those um, mosquitoes, no joke. No joke. Uh, but it wasn't until I went to college in New York, uh, in Manhattan, that I really started to miss Texas and miss the things about it that I crave even to this day. Um, that has informed a lot of why I ultimately moved out to, to LA. Um, New York was a great experience for college. I really dipped my toes into the world of entertainment. And I had my first job working for Conan O'Brien as an assistant at Late Night with Conan O'Brien right out of college, which was amazing. And working in a space of late night TV, especially in the like early aughts when late night was like really booming you know there were tons of shows and there were lots of different hosts and it felt like there was a, a room to grow now late night because of you know I could go on about this by virtue of streamers and people not necessarily needing to tune into television at a certain time of day the genre has sort of shifted but I was there at a time where it really felt like uh, urgent and, and fun um, but I, I knew within maybe a year of graduating college that I really wanted to move out to LA because the entertainment world out there is so much bigger and broader. And because what I understood about LA culture was that it was much more similar to Texas in terms of there being traffic and big avocados and warmth galore. And, uh, you know, I, I just, I, I loved these things that I wasn't getting in, in New York. Um, like really produce in New York is very not good. Uh, it's not great. So while I was in LA and in Texas, I mean, in Texas, we got HEB, you can't go wrong there. Um, so I- The HEB shout out, that, that, oh. that feels good. That feels oh yeah. Nice. <laughs> It's such a Texas thing. So it's such a Texas thing. So, so culture, <laughs> I knew I love my experience in New York, but I was very ready to move out to LA. And thankfully, as far as work has gone, I've been able to, um, you know, to, to, to kind of cultivate a life for myself out here in LA that feels right and feels like home. And uh, my, my husband and I are actually now on the precipice of trying to maybe buy a home at some point. Uh, and it is a very intimidating process. So uh, I'm definitely feeling rooted here in LA, but I miss Texas a lot. And um, to your question about the kind of, uh, you know, how the coasts align with my own identity as a, as a Latina, as a Mexican American, I have definitely felt more connected to my Mexican identity in Texas and in LA than I ever did in New York. Um, but the experience of all three of those coasts is very, very, very different. I know that there's a large uh, Mexican um, and Latin American uh, community here in Los Angeles, but it feels oddly more segmented than it did in Texas, which felt a lot more intertwined. Um, um, although then you, you know, when you walk around Los Angeles, there's a lot, which I love. Uh, and we, we feel that, oh, sorry. Um, but I do, I, sorry about that. My internet just got a little weird. Um, but I do, I do feel like uh, I feel uh, like I've been able to be more connected to my Latin American identity in LA and in Texas than I did in New York. That might just be my experience as a Mexican. Uh, but uh, yeah, I don't know if that answers the question. <laughs> Absolutely. You know, it's, you know, when I think about my experiences in LA, like during the summers when my parents would ship me out there, um, it very much, particularly growing up in Austin, created a very new exposure to me in terms of communities of color. You know, my grandparents being stationed in Inglewood, right, which is very much has a, a, a very um, deep rooted black history, right? But my grandmother was the first 
um, woman and woman of color to be the principal of Santa Monica High, which was largely Latinx and, and, yeah. and had a large black population. And so just seeing those things, it's interesting to kind of hear what how spaces can inform your identity or reinforce your identity. Um, mm -hmm. And I'm sure very much where you draw from in your writing as well in terms of each of those nuances and those histories. Yeah, I, I'm curious when you talk about your experience as a Latina or the Latinx experience here in Los Angeles, I'd like to know how you experience it. Uh, and do you feel it's a more diverse and less connected? Or, um, and, and what are some of the features you have? I, I've, I've been in education all of my life, it seems like, since I was grown. Um, so I've experienced um, the Latin population uh, mm -hmm. as a principal in a school here in Los Angeles, where at one time, uh, I think the enrollment was like uh, 30%. Now at that same high school, it's about 75%. Wow. Yeah. <laughs> and then I had the experience um, in Santa Monica, which is a very different experience from LA. Mm -hmm. And it was a high school where uh, I'd say 60% combined of the uh, student population were black or Latin Latino. Mm -hmm. And um, and that was different. Uh, experience from here in Los Angeles. Uh, and so, and then, you know, I've, I've spent a number of years teaching at USC. There's a strong Latin presence at USC. So, um, and they're all very different. They really are very united, very different. I don't know, is it because people here come from so many different places? in the Latin world or so tell me what you've seen <laughs> yeah I uh, it's such it's first of all thank you for your work as an educator I don't think we thank our educators often enough and it just it it, uh, it can't be said frequently enough how grateful I am to you how grateful we are to the years of, of service that you've given us because it is uh it's 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 hard it's hard work for sure it's something I care about deeply my mom was an educator as well she's since retired but she uh taught me so much about the value of different types of education I had public school education I had private school education I had single sex education uh when I went to an all-girl Catholic school in each of those spaces my Latin American identity was uh it, it was very very different and to to your question about LA though uh and my experience you know, it's so interesting because I feel like I appreciate, I, I, I approach my experience as a Latina in LA in two different spheres. There's the way that I interact in the city, and then there's the entertainment side of things. Because the entertainment industry is its own element of the city. It's a subculture that's very distinct from and not reflective of the rest of the city. So I have found that the way that I interact in the city feels a lot more relaxed. I feel the diversity more frequently. To your point about there being so many different types of uh, people from Latin American cultures represented. Oh my gosh, yes. I did not know what a pupusa was until I moved to LA. <laughs> and I can't believe that it, it's, it's amazing. It's amazing. And I think it's from El Salvador and Guatemala, like several different Latin American countries, but not Mexico feature it. So that's like just an example of how revelatory my experience as a Latina here has been in LA. However, on the industry side of things, the entertainment side of living in LA, it's vastly different. I feel you know, we talk about tokenism a lot in spaces of, uh, you know, where, where people of color exist. 
there is an element of that that I feel strongly in the entertainment sphere and not so much as just a, a resident of Los Angeles. Uh, and it has changed a lot too in the last 10 years, 12 years since I started, where I used to feel very much like an outsider who was kind of um, an outsider who felt like to even be in this space made me lucky, like I had a golden ticket to now where I feel like there is more of an institutional appreciation perhaps for, for my voice being there, which has been a big shift. And, and one that I'll say is a very positive shift. Uh, one that still has a, a lot, uh, much you know distance to go, but uh, one that I'm starting to see as being, I think a very positive turn for those of us who are people of color in the LA industry side of things. Um, but those two sides of Los Angeles are very, very different because truly the entertainment industry does not reflect the diversity uh, uh, that we that we have here in Los Angeles. And I'm, I'm, I'm waiting for the day that that will happen. Um, it has been very much an uphill climb uh, and we're not there yet by any means. Definitely not there. And you know, you use the word tokenism and, and I, I would love to hear a little bit more, particularly in your early days, making that shift from New York into sort of the entertainment space in Los Angeles. Um, you know, I think oftentimes Hollywood and in any industry, any sector, the response to this call, this challenge to be create more equitable spaces, to create more diversity in the voices that are represented, the response has been tokenism, which is not equity, right? Mm -hmm. And it creates this, this, this relationship or dynamic that you should be grateful that we've invited you into this space, right? And, you know, we look at the landscape of television over the past 20 years, it's like, well, we should just be grateful for that one singular show, right? Fresh off the boat, like, hey, yep. our AAPI community, just be grateful. You've got one show on prime yep. television, right? And then for a really long time, it's like, well, you should just be grateful, right? For Fresh Prince of Bel-Air, right? But it doesn't yep. reflect the full um, uh, breadth right, of our cultures, our identities, our, our nuances. And so I wonder if you could share a little bit about your experience. Um, I know when we first spoke, you talked a lot about the, um, the sort of, again, the friction of like the honor and the burden and the exhaustion of being the only melanated person in a writer's room. Um, and, yeah. Yeah, hey, Rachel, I just wanna say like, I'm, I was surprised to hear you say, that the change is one that you now view in a positive light because I think, you know, from the public looking in, it's it's sort of like, all right, in 2020, George Floyd happened, all these people in power, these white people decided that they cared about racism now, and then it seems to have like fizzled really quickly, right? So the yeah. idea that what you're experiencing on the inside is not performative and it is actual true change and inclusion is really um surprising to me but also like gives me a lot of hope so in conjunction with like Virginia's question I would love to hear about kind of that transformation awesome I think that that is such that is such an apt observation and I think uh man I think you're you're absolutely accurate I'll start with with my kind of the early stages of my um career and what I've sort of seen shift so um there are a number of programs in um, Hollywood and some in New York too that networks sponsor like diversity programs for up and coming writers. They use the word diversity to basically try to elevate 
uh, voices of, of color, whether it, it is just, you know, women, people from the LGBTQ community, not just women, by the way, we're not just women, um, <laughs> women, people from the LGBTQ plus community, people of color, etc. And the goal, and these programs have been around for a couple of decades now, most of them, the goal is to try to uh, find talent in those areas and elevate them so that they can be members of staffs, writing staffs, uh, or, uh, you know, on television, um, all of which is a really noble goal, and I think is fantastic. But what I found in my early days of writing for TV is that because these programs were uh, primarily paid for by the network and not by the show itself, which is kind of two different budgets, the show uh, wouldn't necessarily care so much about elevating the voice of the person who was brought on as a quote unquote diversity hire diversity writer and oftentimes didn't promote those writers. So you would have people have this first opportunity, the kind of performative opportunity, if you will, so that a network can say, yeah, well, we have a, a writer of color on this show. But if that person didn't get an opportunity to continue on into season two or season three, they were repeating the same position of being a staff writer, which is like the, the lowest uh, sort of entry level position for a writer time and time again, while as white writers would often get elevated uh, with no question. They would just go on from season to season becoming, you know, higher and higher up the ranks, getting more and more money, of course, which is which is part of, um, you know, part of the issue here, people needing to be paid uh, commensurate with their work. Um, I have felt that now there is there are at least more people in positions of power, more showrunners that I've noticed who have an, an interest in making sure that those people of, of color or from, from um, underrepresented communities are being elevated past the kind of performative entry-level position. So that's specifically what I mean that I'm seeing a change in that in that world. Uh, I've seen it happen to me, thankfully, but it took a long time. I was a staff writer, I think three times, um, which is normal for people of color that you get shifted from one show to another. For white writers, it's often different. You find yourself on a show and then within three seasons, you're a producer level. And it's like, it's very, that's very common. Um, so, you know, I will say that what I am finding in terms of there still being a disconnect in the way that people of color are able to tell their stories on television is that there's um, there's a lot of interest from streamers, network studios to develop shows with writers of color, but getting them on air and keeping them on air for multiple seasons, we still have so far to go because to the point of there being the one fresh off the boat, the one blackish, the one gentified, there is this um, expectation that we should, as creators, sort of be happy with there being the one, when the reality is that there should be 12 hentifies and there should be 20 blackishes because not each one of those stories is gonna represent a different side of what it means to be a person of color and the creator's um, interest in storytelling and the stories that they wanna create. So there, and that is, the huge disconnect that I that I still find a lot of frustration with. Uh, and I don't know what it's going to take to invest in those stories, but I do know that it doesn't start with just having more writers of color or actors of color. We need more studio executives of color. We need more network executives of color. We need more people who are on the green lighting side of things, which is maybe the less sexy job in many instances, and certainly the less, the, the more uh, infrequently highlighted jobs, but those people are the ones who ultimately give us the power to be able to tell our stories on television. And until that 
community also reflects diversity, we're still going to get a bunch of, you know, middle-aged white executives saying, okay, well, this feels safe, or they've got the one, so it's fine. Um, Long-winded way of, of kind of expressing. Oh, so good. Very exciting news that the third season of Solar Opposites, the adult animated alien comedy on Hulu, will be dropping this June. Not sure the exact date, but it'll be dropping this uh, June. All of the episodes will be available all at once. So if you haven't seen seasons one or two, I would check that out now to get ahead. And season three of Star Trek Lower Decks is going to be coming out on uh, Paramount, I think. It was Paramount Plus, but now it might just be Paramount. Um, but available on Amazon and other streamers as well very soon uh, this summer, too. So look out for that. First of all, thank you for the compliment about being an educator. Oh, of course. But, uh, but I, I'm, I'm grateful for it, and yet I only halfway accept it because <laughs> one of the reasons I still consult, I've, I've retired three times, <laughs> is that education is part of the problem. Yes. Uh, and education has perpetuated these myths, stereotypes, uh, concepts of who America is and who's American and who belongs. Mm -hmm. And so uh, much of the work I still do is to protest through my work, the way that uh, black and brown children especially are seen in the classroom and the stories that they bring with them, the stories their parents have and how those things need to find their way into our curriculum and pedagogy. So I'm working really hard with a group of uh, mainly Latina, uh, well, no, there are males too. So it's the Latinx community and black community trying to build what we call community schools. And I don't know if you're familiar with that, but the, the whole concept is that the school is only one piece of the community. Mm -hmm. uh, and typically schools have gone in and we're here, we're the experts, send us your children, we'll send them back, but we're, we're learning that they're only one entity in that community and that the degree to which schools work with all the other entities and see brown and black communities as assets uh, driven as well as deficit laden. Mm -hmm. And we invite those stories in so that we understand the funds of knowledge that children bring because mm -hmm. schools have been organized around a model which I call the legacy model. Mm -hmm. And the culture of the school is built upon those who have power, mm -hmm. white, and the curriculum reflects it, the way children are accepted or rejected, the language they bring, all of that, unless you can be like that white middle-class child, mm -hmm. you don't really get equal access to educational experiences. So I take your compliment because I need them all the time, something. <laughs> However, it's, it's uh, with reserve that the struggle is still in every institution of our mm -hmm. nation. Mm -hmm. uh, and certainly when you speak of the field you're in, but education has driven and we see these, I don't wanna, I don't want to bash Texas right now. <laughs> You can, you can. You know, even not wanting people to know history. Well, I our know. story, our history is in our stories. Uh, and so I'm glad to see people like you who are getting on television and are having some say uh, about the stories that get told. Because I think when people see it in those realms, 
they begin to be better informed about who people are. So it's one other, I have one more question for you. Oh, yes. Um, so I know that this nation has a hard time um, giving, quote, giving equal rights to more than one minoritized group than another. Uh, are you seeing, how does that playing out in television and who gets to have air and whose stories are worth it? And is there a kind, any kind of competition, not because the people who are writing want it, but those who control it uh, want to. So if you could talk about that a little bit. I think that's a, that's a great question. Something I think about a lot because we know that there is a lack of representation for Latinos on television, both in terms of the characters that they play uh, and, and also in terms of stories that naturally involve Latin American uh, characters, Latin American people. Um, we know that, that that that's the case. Uh, you know, the, the demographics don't lie. We are, you know, inching up between 30, 35, 40% of the nation. And uh, it is it is wild how few comparatively people there are uh, who are Latin American on camera and who are developing stories. The question is why that's the case. And I think the reason is because Latin Americans are viewed frequently as a monolith that we are all of the same ilk, that we all have the same types of stories to tell, that our cultures are sort of uh, uniform, but the reality is we're not. And, and to your point about there being so little education uh, and so many strides to be made in terms of especially history, the problem is if we as Americans can't identify the differences in Latin American cultures and understand the dozens and dozens of, of countries that fit the Latin American world, then we can't begin to understand the distinction in those, in those cultures. There are so many differences that I, I know. I, I brought up pupusas as an example, but like a food's a great way to get to know how different your, your Latin American country of origin is from the dozens of others out there. But the reality is I can't necessarily speak for or even write to the Guatemalan experience or the Colombian experience or the Venezuelan experience. They're all very different, but there's a disconnect in America, in, especially in the entertainment industry, because we, we loop, we group all of these uh, cultures together as one and expect all audiences to view all stories coming out of the brains of people from these countries and cultures the same uh, or to feel a certain level of connection with them when the reality is we can't. Not to mention the fact that within America, the disconnect in generations that we have from those or countries of origins, you know, being first generation versus being a recent immigrant versus being somebody who is maybe, you know, two or three generations removed or maybe even more from Latin American culture. Um, you know, there's, there's so many different stories and so many different variations in the way that we each as Latin Americans digest our identity that it's very difficult to make these stories universal for everybody. So I think uh, that is the reason why there haven't been a lot of Latin American stories that have really hit for people, but it can happen and it does happen. And I think the reason, uh, I think when I'm learning and, and I have a, a long way to go in terms of learning this for my own career, but I think that when you, I'm not gonna say remove our cultural element from the story, but when you realize that telling a story that is about Latin American characters must also 
and this is the case with really any good storytelling, but it must also be about something more universal. Um, that is the way I think to appeal to greater audiences. I'm thinking, for instance, this, the movie Encanto, the Disney movie Encanto, which came, which came out a few months ago. It is so good. I watched it. Oh. Was like my my best friend's four year old, and it was just it's, it's wonderful. Little, I saw it the other day. Can we just talk about like the attention to detail around hair texture, like that alone, yes. like blew me away. <laughs> I was like, I, that looks like his hair. That looks like my hair. And and yeah. Anyway, sorry. Go on. I, I just no. You know why that's so awesome? That's because I got I had the same feeling too. And it's because when you have animators of color who know to think about hair texture, like what an what an amazing advancement that is. So you have movies like that, and I think what's great about Encanto is it, it's so clearly proudly Latinx, but it's also about universal themes and also yes. The is damn good. So at the end of the day, we should not have to sacrifice quality to be able to tell our stories. And I think that sometimes, especially when you're in a world where, again, studios, networks, et cetera, who are greenlighting stories are more concerned with their image of what Latin American culture is rather than what's real, you get watered down versions or you get uh, very two-dimensional versions of, of Latin American stories and not multi-dimensional really um specific and 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 very um you know fruitful stories uh from latin americans and i know i'm being broad here but i i just think that until the people i said this i know once already but until we're getting uh stories greenlit by people who understand that complexity and that difference and that nuance coming from all these different countries and embracing it um i just think that we're going to continue to get kind of either watered down versions or lack or, or, or stories that are lacking uh, of, uh, uh, in complexity from Latin Americans. Um, yeah. I was just gonna say, so it, it brings up this question of equality versus equity. Mm. Um, so the point you made is such an important point. And the editor of a collection of poetry a few years ago called Black Voices or Black Poets mm. said this really insightful thing, he said, you have to tell the, if you, you must tell the truth and you must tell it in detail. Otherwise you will not reach universality mm -hmm. because you're gonna miss those unique ways that human beings everywhere express themselves, but it's in their own world. So he said, Yeats wrote about Ireland all his life, but he told it in such detail and he told it so truthfully that people saw the universality of it. So when you water them down and don't tell that truth about people's humanity, but you have to respect their humanity yes. to believe that a particular story from a particular group of people achieves universality. And mm -hmm. if you don't think they're equal, you think that their stories don't matter. Yes. That's One last thing. So when you talk about this diversity, one of the things that has been controversial has been the Afri Afro experience. Mm -hmm. and, and actually one recent movie got a lot of heat because it didn't show diversity yeah. in that. Yeah. So, um, so as we embrace each other in our particulars, we do achieve un universality. I think, uh, yes, you know, to, to the In the Heights point, um, I think uh, it very rightfully uh, deserved the criticism of not representing 
Afro-Latinos, especially coming from, you know, the Washington Heights area. Uh, and, and I think it was a real, it was a real oversight. It was a real oversight. And I think it's, it's a worthwhile conversation to have about why that, that was lacking, why it was so emotionally, understandably upsetting for so many who didn't feel like they were represented. What I'll say also, though, to that point is the pressure on In the Heights to be representative of all Latin American cultures for everybody was so great because it was the only movie. Right. That's exactly it, right? It's like, like, what happens when yeah, we that, I was, movies in a year? There's so much pressure. Yeah, for sure. Sorry. Exactly. Justice is upset too, y'all. Justice is very <laughs> upset that, that yes. there was so much pressure on one particular film. <laughs> I had Justice something to say, but she decided I wouldn't say it. <laughs> Justice is having her say. Okay. I like it, Justice. I like it. To all you know, our listeners, uh, we've got the youngest rebel in the room as well. Uh, yeah. what, almost two and a half months. Uh, no, three months. She just turned three months. Three months. And um, Justice is demonstrating her um, her challenge to Hollywood as well today. We love um, Justice's voice. It's an important voice on this podcast. Right. Voice. Exactly. The youngest co-host. The youngest co-host. It's so funny too because she is. Um, she keeps her head on a swivel, and you never get anything past her. So. <laughs> I feel like she's gonna be a force. She's gonna be vocal. <laughs> but what I was gonna say is like the one of the gifts that you know I think white people have that they don't realize is the ability to be bad, the ability to get stuff wrong. Oh because, my god, yes. And the right because it's like there's so many other options, but yeah. people of color we don't have that. So like in the heights missed the mark right like they they missed the mark on that and that was a big oversight which i i also don't understand how but yep. whatever right yep. but but there's all there was also no room to fail you have no room to like learn out loud and like recalibrate and get it right because there's so little representation um and it's like really really frustrating it's the same thing when everyone was like criticizing queen and slim and it was like, oh, well, there's this whole like black Twitter conversation around, should we be doing this out loud where other people can hear it? And should we be criticizing it at all? Because we just have to support everyone instead of being like, no, we have the right to not like something or to yes. think that something can be better, right? right. Um, and white people get to do that all the time, but we feel this pressure to be like, you know, nope, I'm just gonna root for everybody black. I'm just gonna root <laughs> for every person of color and I'm gonna have no critique. Right? Yep. Like you, you don't have the ability to do that. But we're not allowed to be um, nuanced and we're not allowed to have margin, right? That it's, it's you know, I think someone just recently tweeted like the exhaustion of being a woman of color in the workplace because mm-hmm. you are asked to, to operate at a level of exceptionalism all the time, right? Mm-hmm. Which is exhausting and not human, honestly. Like if we're being honest, you're being asked not to be human because yes. there's such a greater um, impact and risk, right, of failure for you, uh-huh. which I think, you know, kind of begs me to kind of start to inquire, you know, G-Mom used this word that education for her is a tool of protest, right? That we're going to protest. I love that, G-Mom. I love that. That it's, we're going to protest the way that America has, like, eroded the truth, has eroded history, has eroded our cultural identities, <laughs> right? To say that there's only one way to be American. There's only one way that you can be human and your life be protected. And so I wonder, you know, in your experience in these writing rooms, how you both sit in this posture of wanting to be a part of this labor of representation, wanting to 
formulate stories that reflect your experience and other people's experiences um, within your community and recognizing the power in that. But then you, I mean, you've had such a diverse background of, of writing, right? You've been yeah. on talk show host, you've done political satire, you've done, you know, um, <laughs> animated shows, animated about aliens. Shows. You've, done, exactly, yeah. you've done aliens, you've done sitcoms. Yeah. And so I also wonder if sometimes there is an, a yearning or part of your like resistance to just be able to be you, be authentic, and that not necessarily aligning with what that white male executive believes is the Latinx experience. Like, yeah, I want to write about aliens. Like, I don't yeah. want to necessarily always have to write about the Mexican-American experience. Yes. Okay, I could talk forever about this. I love it so much because I will say that I'm in two writers' rooms right now for Solar Opposites, which is about a bunch of aliens from a planet called Schlorp that land on Earth, and they're really raunchy and they hate life. Uh, that's a Hulu show. And then I'm also a writer on Star Trek Lower Decks, which is a Star Trek show that's all about these crazy ensigns who are basically like lower level beginners in the Star Trek world. And neither of these things have anything to do with race. And it is awesome. I love it. I love it. I just get to exercise my voice as a writer. I get to tell alien butthole jokes. I get to be like, you know, I mean, I, I, the also the shout story. out to the Trekkies because also, lost prosper. my mother is a Trekkie. I became yes. a little bit of a Trekkie, you know, yes. well, mostly because of LeVar Barton Burton. And I just like, yes. to like my headband over my eyes when I was, <laughs> I was his character, but it's also well, interesting thinking about Star Trek because the origins of that was talking about race and identity, but in yeah. a way that was closeted to white America, right? Yeah, and in a way that was really progressive and really, really uh, universal. Yeah, I mean, and it's exciting to be part of that world now in 2022 because it seems like it, it, every day feels like an homage to those early days of being uh, so progressive, uh, which I, I really love. Um, but I, I think like it is so important for me to have outlets in my writing where I don't have to focus on the exhaustion of representing and being the be all and end all for, you know, young Latina, Mexican American writers, because that work is wonderful and fulfilling, but it can be exhausting. And to the point about me needing to bring in my specificity in and my nuance and, and into those stories, it is it is really it's really difficult to feel like uh, when I'm in those spaces that I have to be representative of all because it, it's so overwhelming and it can't be done. It just can't be done. So that pressure is taken off me when I get to write other fun things that have nothing to do with my identity, my Latin American identity. Um, but I will say that the two balance each other out, and the the more that I progress in my career, the more I realize that I long for both in equal amounts. I really want to, and I'm so grateful for the, the people that have brought me in, um, in rooms and on different shows to be not uh, Grace the Latin American, but just Grace the writer. And I'm also really grateful to people who have said, hey, your specific voice as a Mexican American from Texas that is what we want to highlight. So it's about finding that balance for me because I think one or the other would make me feel like I am writing in deficit. If all I did was write alien butthole jokes too, I feel like maybe I would be, um, I would be preventing others from the exciting things that I have to say about my identity. And I think that's, that's important. And I do think that my voice, especially as a Mexican American from Texas is important, but if that 
is all I did on the flip side. And I think there's a part of me as a creative that would feel a little limited too. So um, I wonder if maybe the lesson there is how can you create, how can the industry support writers of color to make them feel like you don't have to fit in either of those two buckets exclusively, but that we as an industry are supporting you as a writer and as a creator and as a storyteller to be able to fit in both of those buckets equally. That I think is is yeah. the mark of success. But you know, I think you do have both worlds. Inevitably, whether you're writing about aliens or spaceships or whatever, inevitably you bring yourself. And in yourself are those influences that have made you. And so without being conscious and deliberate about it. And that's, I think, the fullest meaning of diversity mm-hmm. is that we in these, uh, these other spaces, so-called neutral spaces, or et cetera, they are enlarged by the diverse the diversity of those participating in it who inevitably bring something rich from who they are mm-hmm. uh, and you're not consciously overtly inserting it but you're enriching it because of the experience you've had mm-hmm. and for me that's the fulfillment of diversity mm-hmm. that you don't have to shout it and you don't have to always be so intentional, but I'm recognized for my humanity and my humanity is tied up in the culture that created me. And I'm bringing it to America, to the world. Um, And so when we reach that level, I think that that's when we really, we don't have diversity yet. We have pockets of of differences. (laughs) I agree. That's the true diversity. I love that. that distinction that we don't, the, the freedom to not always have to um, insert ourselves, but the opportunity to just influence because that's who we are, mm-hmm. that naturally that's what informs, that's what informs um, how we do things, where we do things. And I love, I love that as like the nuanced difference, right? That we're not always being asked to yell it and plant a flag, right? But just by naturally walking in our, in our innate postures, right? That have been informed by language and culture and education and, and all of those things. And I'm, I'm curious, you know, Grace, you're, you know, prob- you're still sort of in uh, the crux of forming your career, but you've had such great success in it. And and you know, as we kind of close out, I want to hear about like the upcoming products that you have. But as you reflect on your career thus far, thinking about like as you said, like you're seeing some growth, you're seeing some transformation happening. Like, what's giving you hope, right? And what's giving you hope not only within the industry, but hope around what the industry may be able to impact at large. And I think a little bit about maybe like the last five or six years, just as a, um, a viewer and as a storyteller myself, just seeing the, um, the, the glimpses of possibility in sort of these, you know, we had Black Panther and then we had Crazy Rich Asians and then we had Into the Heights. And those we could argue, right? Okay, well, that's like mainstream blockbuster in some ways very much in that whole of like, this is what the Asian American experience is. This is what Wakanda looks like, right? Mm-hmm. But even as a black woman, you know, I go back to Megan's comments, you know, she talked about like 
We're just going to root for all the people of color. We're going to root for everything black, even yeah. though I'm not loving this content, right? And I think about at one point on television, we had Atlanta, Insecure, Blackish, and then um, uh, like Greenleaf or something like that. Yeah, yeah. And there was such freedom for the first time in my life to think I could say out loud, this show's not for me. Yes. Connect with it. I don't think I'm their core audience. I don't yeah. get it. And I can say it out loud, not just in my head. I could have yeah. a conversation with Megan and be like, nah, girl, I ain't watching that. <laughs> right? But then say like, this show does seem true. This does ring true to me. And that is so freeing because there have been very few points in our American history that as people of color, we've been given the full autonomy and freedom to say, um, what is for me, right? And and be able to indulge in the nuances of our personhood. And so I, I wonder what's giving you hope. Well, I still feel like I haven't reached that as a as a Latina audience member yet, where I can say, hey, this show that's you know written for by et cetera Latin Americans is not for me. I still feel like there's so few that I got to cherish every single every one that I get. Um, I think though, what is giving me hope uh, is. Dune. Have you guys seen Dune? Okay, I love Dune. It. I've not seen it. Partly because I love of like COVID and like getting to the theater. Yeah. And stuff. Dune is not inherently a Latin American story, but it features Javier Bardem, Spanish actor, Oscar Isaac, who is Guatemalan, who I love, and neither of them, they're both allowed to have their natural accents in this world that's completely sci-fi oriented that felt to me kind of like a Latino movie. I was a Latino blockbuster without calling it out as such. And that to me felt like progress where you can have Latin American actors playing roles that could have in any other world gone to a white actor, uh, but didn't in 2022. And that that is awesome. That to me feels very exciting. Um, I think that there are just more and more of us, more Latin American, more Mexican American writers coming around and having new stories to tell. And I think the more opportunities that we get, even at lower levels, is very exciting, is very, very, very exciting. But I do think that all of those stories that we tell are aided by the support of bigger names. So I know, for example, I'm working on a project with Eva Longoria, she's fantastic. Her success is able to bring about the success of others like myself as well. So the more that we do have those big stars, you know, who, you know, the JLo's of the world, the Eva's of the world, who are able to say, listen, I, I know I'm, you know, internationally known as an actor, as a performer, as a superstar or whatever, but I'm also going to be a producer and director. The more that they are able to elevate the voices of those of us who are storytellers as well. Uh, and I think that's huge. What we're seeing with Latin American voices, the Salma Hayek's of the world, Penelope Cruz too, who are starting production companies. So they specifically can help Latin American voices. I love that. That makes me really, really happy. And they are getting the support from networks and studios to have overall deals so that they're getting money to develop yeah, ideas. That money. So, I think also Zoe Saldana also started. Zoe Saldana, yes. Yeah, yes. which is also interesting to hear, I mean, that, or, you know, just by virtue of what you said, that it's mostly women, right, that are it is. the storytellers and being the financiers or financiers, you know, and yeah. I think that says something about just that intersection right there and being able yeah. to um, to assert our voices. Um, yeah. Well, speaking of, um, you know, small name drop, Eva Longoria, um, yeah. tell us about this upcoming project. 
So we are, uh, I can't say too much about it yet. We're still developing this project with Eva, with 20th, with Josh Barcel, who's a, who's a fellow writer and a producer on Solar Opposites. Um, it is, you know, in the nascent stages, these things take a long, a long, long time. Uh, that is another thing that I'm learning, that you have to be very persistent about the projects that you want to put forth because you never know how long it might take and in what kind of permutation a show might end up with I don't know if you guys have watched Abbott Elementary on ABC which I love it's Megan's about to go off I love it man so much <laughs> it's so my favorite oh so good did you know it started as an animated show the idea oh, like I had years ago oh. it was animated. And, and it's that's, so good. It's so good. And Quinta is is a goddess. She's brilliant. And the cast is so good. And that's an example of a show that's been through so many permutations before it landed exactly where it needed to. So I am preparing yeah. a particular show to like have whatever it takes whatever permutations it needs to go through to make it to air. I'm very, very excited about that. I will say also the one thing that I've noticed that I think would help to, um, to utilize television uh, and film too, but especially television in a way that allows uh, stories that just wouldn't be told otherwise that are not told in the classroom is how can, and this is something I'm trying to do, how can I tell stories about Mexican history and about, about Latin American history? Like how can I have a, a Mexican version of the crown? You know, a, a, a story like we have so many versions of Princess Diana, I can't take another. <sighs> Diana story. What do we, we have the crown, we have the- Oh my God, Spencer. Yeah. I mean, she she had a tragic life and uh, also a very hopeful life. There, There's so much richness there, but there are so many different royals out there and so right. many different dynasties. I think if we can utilize that same energy that we put towards telling the same story about the same couple of British royals, like if we put that towards Mexican, uh, royalty towards you know Spanish royalty towards African royalty how cool and badass would it be because there's a whole world of storytelling that we're not tapping into that would be so exciting it should be filled with bloodlust and sex and crazy war like, like all those yeah, things I, mean, yeah. I love modern storytelling too but I really feel like historical and historical fiction when it comes to Latin Americans and those origins is super interesting to me that we have not seen so that's something I'm personally working on that I'm looking forward and, and I absolutely would agree and I think it's one of the areas where where schools have let us down mm -hmm. um, you know there. I have a favorite writer who always talks about history isn't everything, but it's the clock that tells us the cultural time of day and who we are on yes. the map of human geography. And that's John Henry Clark. Oh. Um, so I think that um, without knowing people's history, you can't understand their manifestations. We are artifacts of our history, just in our being. So those stories really need to be told. There's yeah. one other thing I'd like to ask you about. So yeah. do you see, we always think of integration of people of color with white people, mm -hmm. but uh, in what ways are Black and Latinos or Latinx working together to create spaces that include both of, the, of our being? Uh, which is a way that, um, that manifests a kind of unity, a, a force, yes. uh, and that we aren't defined by when white people say we can be integrated, but mm -hmm. we are defining our spaces together on our own, and we don't, we can 
admit white people, but we don't have to have them. So talk to me a little bit about that. Well, listen, Rose Rebellion is a perfect example of a group that's integrating voices of ladies of color that are not exclusively from one origin or another. And it's part of why I'm so excited to be part of this family. Um, I will say the best experience that I've had with that so far, I was a correspondent and a writer on the nightly show with Larry Wilmore. And that show was all about elevating diverse voices that were not exclusive to any one particular background. And I think it did an incredible job. It was very progressive for its time. I miss it. <laughs> I miss Larry, he's amazing. But I feel like there needs to be more of that. There hasn't been that since the show went off air in like 2016, like five years ago now. So, um, you know, I, I think that there needs to be more spaces to reflect that, that don't currently exist. And it's just, it's so frustrating when you feel like you have to be everything to your specific background. Like, I mean, I, I mentioned being Mexican American so much because it's like, I feel sometimes like I have to carry the weight of just being Mexican American from Texas, much less like all Latinos or broadening it. You know, it's so, it's so frustrating. So um, I think that I'm trying to point to some shows that have done a good job of that, but um, God, I don't know. I don't know. I don't know what the, I don't know what the exclusive That's answer to come. Is. That's to that, come. Is, yeah. that is to come, but I will shout out Larry Wilmore and I will shout out the show, The Nightly Show, because I think we did a really good job of doing exactly what you're pointing to. And I want more. <laughs> I need it more for my soul and for my creative, my creative side. I was going to say, Grace, I don't know if Virginia will remember this, but when we were meeting in the coffee shop, just brainstorming about what Rose to Rebellion could be. Y'all, Eli is doing his own thing. It is what it is. He's in the background. He's joyful. And, <laughs> um, and so... <laughs> But when we were brainstorming about what Rosa Rebellion could be, one of the things we talked about was telling our history in um, a way that was entertaining and that would draw people in. You don't even realize you're learning, but, it, you know, like something like The Crown. I can't even think of the other one that everyone watches because I don't watch it. But um, me and Virginia also have a show we love called Poldark, um, which has lots and lots of history in it. And so right there uh, with you on that. And one of the things that I think is happening organically is like people are doing that on like TikTok yeah. or like Insta story, right? So like, how do we take what's happening there and like, you know, make it into like full shows because people are obviously interested in it, as you can see by like the millions of views that these little videos are, are getting. So I'm very excited about the possibility of you know doing uh, you doing like a historic show that man that is like that. right up that's the fusion of who we are yes, at Russell exactly. that intersection is so exciting oh that makes me happy I love that well Grace not only does that make us excited but we're just grateful and excited um, to be connected to your voice to your work thank you so much for joining us for our conversation and thank you for the the ways in which you're contributing to the larger Rosa Rebellion story at large and, you know, as storytellers, and, you know, I believe G-Mom, as an educator, as a storyteller, she's in the middle of writing a book about her mother Ooh. and family history. Oh. Uh, Megan and I, as storytellers, we just understand um, the power that that has to not only build connection, but also serve as this tool of disruption, or as G-Mom said earlier, as protest. And mm -hmm. so we just thank you for your work. We thank you for your voice. And we look so forward to supporting all the things that you have down the road. 
And and likewise, ladies, thank you so much. This has been so invigorating and delightful. And I'm just, I'm looking forward to so much more. Thank you. Thank you for including me also in this family. I feel very, very, very blessed. Thank you. Thank you. And pardon me for having to sign off, but my dog had to go out. Oh, no worries. <laughs> All good. So nice to yeah, meet you. we... <laughs> Oh yeah, uh, Briss, we um we'll create space for each guest if you have anything you want to promote to do like oh. a 30 second PSA. So I don't know if you want to promote the show on Hulu or if there's anything else you're involved in that you want to do like a 30 second and we edit it in the middle of the podcast episode. Oh, okay, cool. Yeah, uh well I uh the third season of Solar Opposites for which I'm a writer and producer uh, will come out on Hulu this June, so very soon. Uh and then I'm going to pause you and we're going to yeah. And then you can just literally say that and be like, hey, y'all, tune in to whatever show and then tell us like day, time, and where to go watch it. Okay. So, very exciting news that the third season of Solar Opposites, the adult animated alien comedy on Hulu, will be dropping this June. Not sure the exact date, but it'll be dropping this uh, June. All of the episodes will be available all at once. So if you haven't seen seasons one or two, I would check that out now to get ahead. And season three of Star Trek Lower Decks is going to be coming out on uh, Paramount, I think. It was Paramount Plus, but now it might just be Paramount. Um, but available on Amazon and other streamers as well very soon uh, this summer too. So look out for that.